Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Dueling questions with the DAPS. He enjoyed the time with him. He had some intelligent questions for me, and I tried to have some intelligent questions for him about the way we see the hobby from different age perspectives. The hobby's going to grow 10x. It's going to be from a lot of people that are DAPS age and younger. Thanks, DAPS. Thanks, sponsors. Tops Panini, Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Hugs the Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, CompC.com and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So, dueling questions, he leads off. Welcome, Daps. I've seen a little bit of your content, but I'm looking forward to fielding your questions and seeing how you respond to some of my questions. It's a pleasure to be here, Jim. Thanks for having me. I saw recently you had your 1,000th episode. When did you start this podcast? Thanks, Daps. My lovely wife said, isn't it wonderful that you started your podcast in July 2019? Just in time to hit the ground running when the pandemic hit, when otherwise people were inbound. And she's also the inspiration for keeping it at 15 minutes or under. It's been a lot of fun. So it's been four years now, and I've been having a great time. I'm a math guy, so I did number the episodes. I'm up into the thousands now. Just takes some persistence, but I'm a lifer in the hobby. Okay, my question for you, what were your objectives at the National this year? Because I think you were really circulating around, even though you had your own personal presence. But in the way you hobby, how do you experience that information and sensory overload that was the National this year? This is my fourth in a row, so I'm used to it. We travel to a number of shows every single year, and obviously the National is 10x the next show. But we focus on content, really. At DAP Sports. We're a content company first, live streaming company second, focused on making sure people who visited our booth at the National had an experience that would be somewhat memorable, a little bit different than the next booth they might see. Everybody's setting up their tables with their display cases. And I don't know if you're aware, but in the Breakers Pavilion where we were set up, you're not even allowed to set up display cases with slabs. So that wasn't an option for us. We ended up putting a little putt. And if you hit three in a row, you want a slab off the slab board. So we weren't actually selling slabs. We were giving them away. People don't realize that in the corporate area, in the original conception from the early days of the national, the dealers run the show and they did not allow corporates to sell stuff. They could give stuff away, but they couldn't sell it. Much of that's carried through. Okay. I saw that in addition to your thousandth episode, it said that you have 60 years of experience in the hobby, and I was very curious as to where your 60 years began. How old were you? I'm the opposite of an exaggerator. It's actually more than 60 years, Dabs. I started in 1956 as a seven-year-old, bought my first card, collected in the late 50s, early 60s, high school and college, didn't do as much, but I still was somewhat active. And then I really hit the ground running in the 70s. So in the 70s, 80s, 90s, I started my company and my publishing activities began in the 70s. So it's actually more than 60 years, but I don't like to publicize that. It makes me feel really old. <laughs> Tough question, Daps. Okay. The first year I did podcasts, I did an episode I called Nuanced Nepotism. And I talked about the benefits of hiring family members. Now, this is something I think you can really relate to from what I've seen. My sister was one of my key people 
Mark Harwell had his wife, his brother, his sister-in-law. We had brother and sister, father-son, mother-daughter, every kind of combination in our company as we were growing because it's the easiest way to hire good people when you know their genes, <laughs> you know their work ethic. Now, you can't promote them based on that. You can only promote them based on merit. But when we were growing fast, adding people that were high trust and high competence was a real success for me. I'm wondering if you're not going down that same path. So do you agree with me on that? Or what's your position on that in light of the fact that I think you have family members working for you? And I think it's a great thing. I love that question. And my situation, it was almost forced because when I started DAP Sports, I was working out of my own home. So the question became, how many people can you really trust to work within your home? So first I was working with my sister. Then I shipped my brother out to California from Brooklyn. And then I shipped my mother out from Tampa to California. So I just kept hiring more people in my family because again, I trusted them in my home. And like you said, it's a loyalty thing, high competence. I just knew that if they were next to me and I was giving them instruction, they could get the jobs done that I needed. And as we grow and as we scale, of course, you're absolutely right. You want people who are more and more competent. And I don't necessarily think people should just get jobs because they're family members. But in the beginning, who do you trust more when you start a company than your family? My point in my episode was that I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt on the hiring is somebody that I know their DNA. If they're the brother of somebody that was a great employee and he says, hey, my brother's looking for a job, he's sharp. I was going to give that guy a chance. Now, on the other hand, once they get there, they've got to demonstrate that trustworthiness, that competence, that character. But uh, we had a great ride with that. And I just got a kick out of seeing that you're doing the same. Now, the trick daps is when you get bigger and you run out of family members. (laughs) (laughs) But I picked some other good families. Okay. Back to 1956, you're seven years old. Is there a particular chase as a seven-year-old? Are you chasing Mickey Mantle back then? What city are you in? I'm in Pittsburgh, finishing first grade. And my dad had been a collector. And so we're taking a family vacation. It's probably late May, early June of 1956. Pull over side of the road to a little one-pump gas station. My dad walks in with me. I was the oldest of five kids. And he said, hey, he put a penny down on the counter. A penny daps. For me to get a card. So it was a penny pack of 56 tops, second series. Spook Jacobs was the card I got. I still have it. I could have gotten Mays. I could have gotten Mantle. I could have gotten Duke Snyder. I could have gotten Campanella. I could have gotten Barra. All those guys are in the second series, but I got Spook Jacobs. So it's on my wall and it's much to my chagrin. I didn't collect that much the next year because, again, I was just a little kid. But the fact that my dad had been a collector and had gowdies and play balls was meaningful because my dad encouraged me. And my mom thought, hey, this is a cool hobby. He's not going to get in too much trouble. Little did they know that I was going to make a career out of it. So that's the first step of my journey. So there was no chase other than my dad said, hey, I collected cards when I was a kid. Let's see what you get. And I got a piece of gum for a penny and a card that was an abject comet. Okay, I think you're in your 30s. I'm a math guy. I think you're getting to be the median age. Back in the day, the median age of collectors was in the 50s, let's say. They were 55-ish, plus or minus. And now there's a ton of guys in their 20s and teens 
and 30s and 40s, and it makes me feel like, oh, gee. So do you think you're in the sweet spot in the sense that when you're walking around the national, do you see that you're at the epicenter of age? I think that's completely subjective. I just feel like I can talk to anybody at this point in my life, right? I tell this story all the time. My grandfather was a scout for the New York Jets, and I loved talking football with him. A huge age gap, obviously, between the two of us, but I always wanted to talk to grandpa about football all the time, right? So it's very easy for me 15, 20 years later to want to talk to people your age, older, younger, about sports cards or just sports in general. And then what we do on TikTok and on social media is we create content and a lot of people who consume that content skew a little bit younger, right? They're, they're 13, 14, 15, all the way up to 25. And I feel like I can speak to them too. And I think it's important because if fanatics sets out to do what they say they want to do and 10x the hobby, you got to start with the kids, right? You got to start with the teenagers. You got to start with everybody who skews a little bit younger because 10 years from now, if they've been collecting this whole time, that's how you're going to bridge the generations and you're going to have collectors across all demographics. It sounds like you don't wish you were older. You don't wish you were younger. You are what you are. And that's what I mean by the sweet spot, that you have the youthful energy and all that, but you have some savvy from being on the planet for longer than the 20-somethings. Good you know day. what? It might be the sweet spot. Just accept the compliment, Daps. <laughs> okay. Fair. Very fair. Okay, your turn. As I look at your wall behind you, I see a lot of vintage. And now it's got me curious as to if you do collect any modern cards. And if so, what do you collect? Yes, I do collect vintage more heavily in terms of the way I collect. But what I buy at card shows is more when I'm going through the dollar box, you're not going to see a bunch of vintage cards in there. So I've given myself permission to just have fun with the newer cards at a show and pick out cards that are interesting. And not many of them make the wall, but some of them do. When people come over to see my wall, if I say, hey, you like the Cowboys? Say, yeah, okay. I got Roger Staubach and they gloss over if they're younger. They're, Roger, oh yeah, he's old. Okay. And then you go, how about Troy Aikman? Oh, he's old too. And then you go, Tony Romo. And they go, oh, the announcer. <laughs> and so <laughs> I get a few DAX to express the fact that I want to cover the basis for the whole hobby. So, again, it's been a lot of fun going to shows and just digging through, like I say, dollar boxes and just picking up interesting cards from modern. I've done some breaks just for the experience to enjoy it, but I'd rather be a knowledgeable puller of good cards. What's a bargain box, but I can recognize better cards. And so that's some fun. Then I can trade up and do different things. You've mentioned flipping and you've mentioned scalping as things that you are against. And I, I am too quick flipping or flipping that's taking advantage of somebody. But that doesn't happen as much with vintage. It happens a lot on the ultra modern cards. Like you say, with the bots, nobody's got bots to pick off vintage cards. Vintage is a more established, not as fast moving hobby. You know, the cards don't move as much. So that's my base. But I've given myself permission to enjoy the newer cards. The shiny stuff is cool. But I'm trying to do both. Are you a Steelers fan? No. Pirates, not Steelers. Steelers were no good in the 50s. So Who's your football team? When I was doing the price guides, I really tried not to have an express 
obvious loyalty because I needed to be unbiased. That's why we had regional correspondents spread out around the country and I was going to shows all over the place. I really didn't want to have an implicit loyalty to a team or players. I was a season ticket holder for the Cowboys for a long time and Mavericks now for a long time and Stars and Rangers. So I've had season tickets to all the local stuff. I was wondering if there was a team that you would purchase more often in a break, if it was the Cowboys or if it's random. I purchased Dallas Stars in hockey breaks. It's not that I'm priced out because I have enough money. I'm not poor. But gosh, when I look at the prices for the Mavericks in some of the team breaks, it's just the math doesn't work very well because there's a lot of emotion. It's like bookies. They're trying to even out what are people willing to pay when there's a passion for the team, then people are willing to overpay. I'm not willing to overpay. So I'll just hunt through the dollar box and the other bargain boxes and pick out you know what I want. You don't find Lucas in there, but much to Christina Thorson's chagrin, you do find some Maxi Klebas cards in there. <laughs> and I'll pick out some of those. He was a crowd favorite down there. Okay. You don't do as much with vintage, right? Do you do a little bit on vintage or are you mainly? Definitely a little bit, but I would probably say 80-20. That makes me think that I'm OG, old guard. And you're not old guard. You're right now. And so I'm wondering if there's ever going to be a melding of the old guard and the new guard. When you go to a card show, there's talk about how the nationals should be segregated that the room where you were in was mainly something. The room when you take a left, go right in, it was mainly. I like the fact that it's mixed and that there's a blend and you don't, every table in a room is exactly the same, that it's all vintage. Because some people might tune it out when in reality, there's some cool stuff there. So are you in favor of a strict segregation or do you see, as I do, the benefits of this one big tent we're all under that we can all enjoy the hobby and hobby the way we want to hobby. I completely agree with you. I think it has to be mixed. That's the beauty of the show. How are you going to find anything you haven't seen before? That's why a lot of us attend the national in the first place is we're looking for something we might not have seen. 